Last week, we got introduced to a new person named Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. I don't know exactly how you pronounce it. It's, it's a Hebrew word like Habakkuk, so I'm not going to say it like that. You can say it however you want, okay? I'm going to say Habakkuk. And a lot of us aren't too familiar with this guy, which makes sense. It's understandable. He's not very well known, not as well known as one of his contemporaries anyway, a guy by the name of Jeremiah. You might know of him. He's a prophet, wrote a bunch. His book is really big. They lived about the same time in the same place. And uh, Habakkuk wrote less. We don't know much about him. He's not mentioned by any other writer. So he's, his book is part of the collection in the Old Testament called The Minor Prophets. That's near the end of the Old Testament. And even though we don't know a lot about Habakkuk, we can relate to him. We can totally relate to him. Because, number one, he lived during troubling times. He, everywhere he looked, he saw evidence that the world is not the way it, it should be, right? Maybe you've had that discussion in your own mind too. Hey, why are things happening the way they are? This isn't the way things ought to be. You know, where he lived, the culture was sliding downhill fast. The leaders didn't care what God thought anymore, and so the people did whatever they wanted to do. And so he looked around and he saw destruction, strife, violence everywhere he looked. I mean... A lot of times, even if everybody else is not behaving, you have the court system, right? Well, the court system was broken. So the rich people were taking advantage of the poor people. The strong were taking advantage of the weak. The, the wicked seemed to be winning. And so Habakkuk basically asked that question, why is this happening? And he cried out to God, how much longer, O Lord? Are you?" And then he said basically, like, are you even listening? Do you even care what's going on? And maybe after years of praying a, a similar prayer in your own life, maybe you've had that question, is there anybody listening? Do you hear me, God? Are you there? Do you care? And I said last week, we can, you know, that makes, us, makes me say I can relate to Habakkuk. Because we go from wondering, if, is God any, even listening? You know, first of all, uh, and w- wondering if he cares anymore. And then we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 5, where God reminds Habakkuk that he is listening. And God takes those accusatory words of Habakkuk saying, watch and see. And God says, well, watch and see and be astounded at what I'm doing. Someone told me this week that it reminded them of God's words to Job. You remember God uh, allowed Satan to go after Job and to, um, to, to, to do something to Job. And God basically... God basically told Job, after Job asked him, he said, well, who do you think you are? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Well, to Habakkuk, he is kind of like, why are you even asking me about what I'm doing? Because even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. So what he basically says is God is, what we learn here is that God is always at work. God is always working. He's always at work. And the work that he's referred to in verse 5 is in dealing with the injustice that Habakkuk was complaining about. So have you ever wondered why God allows certain sins to take place and to continue? Have you ever asked why, Lord, or how long, Lord? You know, I I talked to somebody recently on the streets, and I was telling them about Jesus, and they basically said, like, well, I don't believe anything good about God, because how could God allow little children to get cancer? And I was kind of like, I don't know, (laughs) you know. I'm not, I don't, I honestly have no idea. But that was his argument. Boom, conversation over. There's no way 
I don't know, understand that. It doesn't make any sense to me. And, and, and then he kind of walked away. And that's a good question. It doesn't make any sense. Why is there suffering at all? Why do people go hungry? Why are there wars with innocent victims? Why does God allow abortion and the, the ending of innocent lives? How long, O oh Lord, we, we pray and we ask God. We cry out to God like Habakkuk does. And God basically can answer us in the same way he answered Habakkuk when he says, I'm doing a work in your days that even if I told you, you wouldn't believe. In other words, trust me, God says. I got it taken care of. Trust me, I'm working. Because God always deals with sin. And you're going to be astonished because God is about to do un something unthinkable, he tells Habakkuk. You might think you know how God is about to work, but you don't know because you know, God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. We, we learn about that in Isaiah chapter 55. In Isaiah 55, he says to the prophet Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts and, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is as higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so what is that unthinkable thing that the Lord is about to do? God is going to punish the disobedience of Judah using the Babylonians. He will use the Babylonians as an instrument of divine judgment against his people Judah. And if you look in verse 6, he says this. But he does say, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. So I say Babylonians rather than Chaldeans. I didn't make a mistake. They are the same person, the same group of people. Chaldeans, or Chaldea, was the region, it's an ancient people group that grew, that started in a small region in southern, modern-day southern Iraq. And they grew from this people group. If you remember, Abraham, or Abram, was from a city of Ur among the Chaldean people in that southern part of Iraq. And they grew, in the 600s, they grew from that small group of people to being, they ended up being a world superpower. They pushed north and defeated the Assyrians in 626 B.C., and they formed the Babylonian Empire. You see, at that time, Assyria was the number one world power. If you remember, Assyria was the ones who ended up like taking over the known world, destroying the northern kingdom of Israel about 100 years earlier. Well, Babylon at this time, they start to grow stronger and stronger as well, and they developed a nasty reputation. In verse 6, we read that they are a bitter and hasty nation, it says in verse 6. In other words, God is not going to send a soft, friendly reminder to the people of Judah to change their ways. He is going to send down the hammer. And that hammer was the person of Nebuchadnezzar. He had already defeated the Assyrian-Egyptian army at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC, which is actually in modern day, like it's north of Israel, kind of in the modern day Syria near the capital of Aleppo. Well, now after the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C., God basically tells Habakkuk, hey, they're coming your way now. They're coming south. They're going to come into Judah. And it's not going to be pretty. And he describes them in a few ways here. In verse 6, he says that they are an army that is hostile, aggressive, and they are very harsh. They know how to inflict harm among their enemies, and they develop this reputation for doing so. And the word bitter there in verse 6 it translates a, a Hebrew word that can be understood as being fierce. And this represents this, this picture of a fierce animal that, that will attack, a wild animal that will attack anything. 
And he called them hasty, not that they weren't planning their attacks, but that they were very quick in their attacks. They were so fast. In fact, the leader of the, the general of the army of Babylon at this time was a man named Nebuchadnezzar II. And he wasn't the king. His father was king back in Babylon, you know, back along the Euphrates River. Well, while he's, right after he defeated the Battle of Carchemish and beat the Egyptians and the Assyrians, he found out that his dad had died. Well, he didn't want anybody taking the throne, so he took all of his army and he flew home, I mean, like a hundred, uh, several miles, several hundred miles across the desert back to Babylon in order to assure that he was going to be crowned the king, take the throne, and he did, and then he went back all the way to Carchemish. Like, th their army was very fast. They were very quick. And he ended up solidifying power, becoming the king and the general. And he was successful. They took land wherever they went. They could, they could wipe out any army. They could seize lands that they had no right to. And that's why in verse 7 it says they were dreaded. They were fearsome. They were filled with pride. They were a law to themselves. They, they actually had no written law, no common sense of law, no common decency to speak of. They were a group of people who made their own rules. They were power hungry and bloodthirsty. And wherever they went, they instilled fear on on people because they had that leader who was fearless and full of himself. Nebuchadnezzar, we, we read about him in the book of Daniel. Remember later on, after he's done with all his battles, he goes back to the capital city of Babylon and he um, was so filled with pride. If you remember in Daniel chapter 4, God had to humble him later on in his life. And remember, he had to eat grass like an animal. And then when he came, when he his sanity was restored, he said that like, oh, there, only God in heaven is Lord. And he was humble because of that. Well, because he was, his whole life was about being prideful him, himself, lifting himself up. And it says, I mean, so in verse 8, it says, while he was is the leader of the army, they, they were swift as leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. This picture of being quick and being hungry. Evening wolves were like, you know, a wolf at night was very hungry. And you know how a wild animal, when they get hungry, will attack anything. And so it wasn't just that they were wolves, but they were hungry wolves looking to devour something and kill and eat. And so they had this scary combination of being as fast as an eagle to attack, willing to attack anybody, not relenting, not being, not having any sense of decency. Jeremiah, he wrote about something similar in Jeremiah 4 when he said, look, he advances like clouds. His chariots are like a storm. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. And so this picture, you know, I remember back in the early 2000s when America um, invaded, remember when they, maybe it was in the 90s, remember when they invaded Iraq and they had this, uh, the American army had this system called shock and awe. You remember that? Where they were going to go in just extremely quickly so to minimize casualties and they were just going to like surprise the enemy with a system that the military leaders came up called shock and awe. Well, that was that was Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They were the original shock and awe people. They would go fast, they would go quick, they would go hard, they would wipe everybody out, and that was the way that they attacked, full of violence, it says in verse 9, that they would just sweep everybody up, um, take people away, like literally, like wouldn't just defeat people, but like Daniel and his friends being taken out of their homeland back to the capital of Babylon. 
And they were violent as they went too. In verse 9, it talks about their violence. It's kind of like, remember verse 3 in Habakkuk uh, chapter 1, verse 3? His complaint with this people are these people, your people, God, they're, they're full of violence. I mean, every neighbor is lying to every other neighbor. Everybody's trying to undercut one another, and there's just violence in the streets. And I feel like God is like saying, oh, okay, Yin's like violence, check this out, okay? You're going to get a taste of your own medicine. And you think these people are violent? Wait till you see the Babylonians that are going to come in. They are violent. And not only that, they can't be stopped. Nobody could stop them. The Egyptians couldn't stop them. The Egyptians working with the Assyrians, they couldn't stop them. And this empire is just growing stronger and stronger and strong, stronger. And they were battle-hard and they were unafraid. They would come up to a city and they would just laugh at it, being like, oh, this, so what? You put walls around the city. You think you're going to stop us? No, we're just going to surround you. We're going to choke off your food supply, your water supply. Then we're going to build a ramp of uh, ground, of soil, all the way up to your wall. And then we're just going to go up that, that ramp and just go over your wall and take you out. And that's exactly what they did. They would, they would laugh at any uh, king, any city that tried to stop them. And notice that God chose to use this, this sinful nation to judge his people. Because they were so disobedient. Because they weren't listening to the prophet Jeremiah. They weren't listening to any prophets. They just wanted to do what they, they just wanted to do what they wanted to do. But just because God used this terrifying, this dreadful nation, doesn't mean He was condoning their sinful behavior. Because we know that God is the God of gods. That our King is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We know that He sets up nations and He disposes them. He puts kings on the throne, and he takes them away. So God can choose to use a sinful nation to accomplish his purposes, and then he can dispose of them if he chooses, which is what happens, and we'll see later on. But God is telling Habakkuk that this is what he chose to happen here. And naturally, what does Habakkuk do when he hears all this about the Babylonians? Man, he is shocked. He can't believe it. To him, this doesn't make much sense, because he knows the Lord. And he knows the character of our Lord. And so, verse 12, he acknowledges who God is. And he begins his second point by saying, you know, okay, that's who they are, God, but, but you are God. And God is eternal. God is everlasting. In Psalms 90, verse 2, it says, Before the fountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is eternal, and God is Lord. He is Lord of everything, and he is the covenant-keeping Lord of his people. And so Habakkuk trusts that God is going to somehow, through all of this, sustain his people, and that they will not all eventually die. He grounds his confidence in God's future for his people in the eternal nature of God, because this is how God has always worked from the beginning of time. God is the Holy One. His ways are always right. And he doesn't just choose to be holy. God is holy. And his ways are not our ways because he is set apart and he is distinct from people. I love too how he says, God is you, O rock. That name for God of being not like the rock or a rock, but he is rock. A metaphor for illustri illustrating that he is the firm foundation, the one who is unchangeable and immovable. The support and stability 
of this prophet's faith is in who God is. And his confidence is in the unchanging character of God, as God as rock. And God is pure. Because of God's holiness, he is too pure to, to, to look at evil, to tolerate wrongdoing. And he is going to unleash judge, un judgment on these people who aren't obeying. And the prophet, he seems to have difficulty with this, seeing this injustice. Because to him, how could you use um, a, a more worse nation to judge a less worse nation? So he, Habakkuk had a problem with the people, but he's still like, well, they're not as bad as them. How could you use them? Like he couldn't reconcile that in his own mind, right? Like you, it doesn't make much sense. Why would you use a more evil nation or a more evil person to judge a less evil person? Well, like I said, God knew what he was doing. God was using this instance to, to judge that his ways were right and that God wasn't going to let sin go unpunished. You know, he knew who God's nature was, that God is pure, and if, that God uh, was not one to make mistakes. So if all of these things are true of God, then why would God allow the wicked Babylonians to swallow up Judah, even though Judah is more righteous? In Habakkuk's mind, this is inconsistent with who God is. And so he begins to struggle with God and wrestle with God and try to ask God, make it make sense, God. And I think this is good because, you know, sometimes we don't understand why things happen the way we do, right? We were just talking about that. Like, why? Why, God? We don't have all the answers. And so we go to God and we ask God questions, just like Habakkuk's doing. We're wrestling with God whenever we're dealing with those super difficult questions of life. And I think it's good that we're thinking about those things. I think it's good to be wrestling with God and asking God those difficult questions. I think it's okay to talk to God about these things that we don't understand. You know, that's not wrong at all. And Habakkuk, he's trying to figure this out, right? And eventually he accepts, maybe reluctantly, but he accepts that this is God's will. So it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. And he, he basically accepts it, right? Because he, he comes down, boils down to the fact that, you know what, God is judge. And it says in verse 13, God has ordained them for judgment. And then he goes on to this um, extended metaphor in verses 14 to 16, illustrating, again, the, the vast political and mil military power that the Babylonians are and how they are going to come into Judah now. And he uses this illustration in verse 14 of fishing, which is, is kind of interesting because he basically says, you know what, all the people of the earth, there's, there's plenty of fish in the sea. <laughs> so there's, the earth is like a big, vast ocean with all kinds of fish. And it really, though it's probably not the sea, it's probably what he's thinking of as a river, a big river, like uh, the Euphrates River, was massive river. Because... Um, the, the word verse he in 15 is re referencing the wicked in verse 13. So it's a personification of the nation of Babylon. And archaeologists have actually discovered in Babylon, they discovered a relief, actually many reliefs. A relief was a carving in the wall. So it's not, it's like part of the wall, like really fancy wallpaper. There's a carving in the wall. It's called a relief. And it's a picture of Babylonians um, fishing with nets in the Euphrates River, scooping up all kinds of fish. 
And that was their illustration for whenever they would attack a nation. They would just sweep everybody up like they did dragging a net through the river catching fish. So the people are the fish and the kings are the fish and they're just sweeping through the land and sweeping everybody up. And no nation was a match for them. And so what they did, verse 15, is like they would rejoice and be glad about their victories because they said, hey, we, we rule the earth and we can't be stopped. And so they just got fat and happy and lived in luxury because they thought, you know what? Who says crime doesn't pay, right? Yeah, nobody can stop us. We're just going to eat and get fat and just wipe everybody else off. And so what they end up doing is they worshiped, it says they worshiped their nets. So like what this is an illustration for is they're worshiping their warfare. They're worshiping their strength, their military strength. They're worshiping themselves, saying, look what I have accomplished. The same thing is true today, isn't it? The same thing is true today of how often it is that people worship their own success. What they think they have accomplished with their own might. The Babylonians were the same way. They worshipped their military strength. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar, they, they did get rich off of all of these nations that they were wiping out. At this time, Babylon had become one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Bab Nebuchadnezzar II was actually because he was named after his grandfather. He built the city of Babylon into a, a city of splendor. They say it was unlike any city of the ancient world because of everything they accomplished as military. And you know what they did? They celebrated themselves. They celebrated themselves. You know, we do the same thing today, don't we? Thinking that our success becomes our God. You know, we read in, in the book of Romans, it says that people exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than cr the creator who is praised forever. You know, we are made to worship. So if we aren't worshiping the creator, we're going to be worshiping the creation. We're going to be worshiping ourselves and worshiping our own strength. And so Habakkuk says in verse 13, how long is this going to keep happening, God? How long will the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, be the aggressor here? How long will you tolerate this wickedness? Is it going to go on forever? And so he be, there's these two complaints in the book of Habakkuk. So it's only three chapters. He has one complaint, God answers. His complaint is like, uh, the first complaint is, is um, how long am I going to have to cry out? And the second, second complaint is, how in the world are you going to use them, people? Right? And then he goes on from there in chapter, he, God answers. And then in chapter three, there's this long poem or a long song. And um, this is basically Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk in a nutshell. Is he basically says, okay, please answer me, God, how long this is going to go on and why are you using this people? In chapter two, verse one, he says, um, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So he says, I'm going to stand, right? I'm going to stand. I've asked God. I've talked with God. And I'm going to stand and I'm going to wait because that's his only option. He is forced to wait on God. Sometimes God puts us into a position where we have nothing else to do but wait. Sometimes God puts us into a position where we don't have the answers. 
And we realize we don't have the strength on our own. So what does he call us to do? He calls us to wait on him. He takes us to the end of our rope, and then that's where God meets us there. And this is where Habakkuk is. He says, Habakkuk is. He says he's going to stand on the watchtower. You know, a watchtower was a tower built into the city wall where the watchmen, the soldiers, would stand guard all night long to make sure no enemy was going to attack. So was Habakkuk literally a watchman on the wall? Maybe. Like I said, I think he worked in the temple, maybe even as a songwriter. But he's saying figuratively, I'm like a watch, a watchman on the wall. And I'm going to like eagerly look. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to... I know that God is going to answer me. I'm not going to give up on God because I know God has answered in the past and God is going to be with me and answer me in the future. So figuratively speaking, he said, I'm going to stand and I'm going to wait on you, God. Because God always answers prayers. God has always called us to faith. You know, not always giving the answer. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, but sometimes and oftentimes it's wait. And Habakkuk had no choice You know, we know in Psalms 27, it says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Because God will answer your prayers. It might not be what you expect. And I'm sure Habakkuk was surprised at the answers that he was getting from God. And I'm sure that he didn't fully understand it, which means that I can relate to Habakkuk here, because it's okay. It's actually good, you know that? It's actually good when you don't always get the answers that you want from God. And I'll tell you why. Let me give you two examples. First of all, if you find God's words um, and his ways are difficult, it might be an indication that you are dealing with a very real God. Let me explain what I mean. And I got this from Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. He gives a helpful illustration from that old movie, I think it was remade, called The Stepford Wives. A step of wives is about a group of men who create robot wives who just smile and say yes all the time. And in the story, the men think this is great, right? You know, just smile and nod and say yes. But, but there is no real relationship with their wives. Everything is fake. They just created robots to do their bidding. And we can do the same thing with God, Keller writes. He said, only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, only then will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. In other words, the fact that God might confuse you, the fact that God of the Bible might disagree with your ethics and not, might, might not agree to your moral code, that's an indication that God is real that he is bigger than your experiences and that he is bigger than your world. And that leads me to the second point, is that this, is that it shows that God is in control. Because think about it. If God's answers were always my answers, then why do I need God? If you're always agreeing with everything I'm saying, why do I need you? Right? In the business world, nobody wants a yes man, do they? In your friendships, do you want somebody who's always going to agree with you? Right? What kind of relationship with it is that? If somebody just always agrees with you, if nobody ever has an opinion, and if, and if God's understanding is limited to my understanding, how small is God? <laughs> right? Why would I need him? I don't need him, right? So the fact that God's ways are higher than our ways and God's understanding is better than my understanding 
is an indication that, I, that God is real and that I need him, that I need to trust him. It's because God is immortal, eternal, all-powerful, and all-knowing that I know that he is not troubled by my doubts and my questions and that he is trustworthy and that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And God can turn evil into good. We see this all throughout the Bible. I instantly think of Numbers, I mean at Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, the story of Joseph. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was counted as dead. And then God raised him up into a position of authority where he was able to uh, give wisdom to the leaders of Egypt, where he could prepare them for a famine. And then when he met his brothers face to face, what did he tell them? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so many people were saved because God took an act of evil and transformed it into good. And that's exactly what happened at the cross. Jesus was the recipient of the greatest act of evil ever perpetuated. He was innocent of every crime. But through corrupt officials and lying witnesses, he was sentenced to die a brutal death. However, there was more going on. As the apostles preached in the book of Acts, the religious leaders, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Because on the cross, Jesus suffered and died for the sins of us. And then God raised him up on the third day. Satan thought he had won, but Jesus got the victory at the resurrection. And he won salvation for all who would believe. And so, you know, in conclusion, I want to remind you that God can take the worst situation and bring glory to himself. And it's crazy to me, just like Habakkuk, that God would use that wicked nation for his own good, for their own good, right? And then ultimately for God's own glory. And it's also amazing that God uses sinful people like you and me to bring him glory today. There's an old saying that's been in my mind recently, and I couldn't find the origin of it. I knew that Luther in the Reformation said it, but I think he even took that from Augustine or somebody earlier. And it, the saying goes something like this, that God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks because we are crooked sticks, imperfect and sinful people. But in the hands of our Lord God, he can use us to draw a straight line pointing to the cross of Christ. Thank God that his answers are not my answers. It's actually for my good, and it's really for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you that we are not dead in our sins and trespasses, but in our iniquities, but God, that through faith in Jesus, we can have eternal life and know have the assurance that we are totally forgiven, that you are always with us, that you are walking with us, and somehow, some way, you take each one of us who are imperfect sinners and you make us more like Jesus and then use us to point others to the cross of Christ. Oh God, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.